Have you thoroughly enjoyed these Olympics? Like, have they, they've been amazing. They have been amazing. And I, I was uh, thinking about it this morning. I thought to myself, you know, like for me, it's just entertainment, right? To watch somebody ski down a hill or slide down a, an, an ice chute or, or, or to curl or to do whatever they do. Like, it's just entertainment for me. But these people have been doing this for their entire young lives. That's what they do every single day. They show up and they discipline themselves and they push their bodies. And I thought to myself, it's really quite amazing because when that run is over and when this three weeks are over, then I will just go on to my lazy life and they will probably take a bit of a break and then get ready for do it all over again. We are in the uh, difficult sayings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said this. He said, do not judge. Or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. All right? This, this parable, this little teaching that Jesus gives tells us a, a number of things. Number one, it tells us that, that Jesus has a sense of humor. He, he was a carpenter. He worked with a lot of wood. He worked with everything from sawdust to planks. And I think that the crowd would have laughed at the very picture of somebody with a plank in their eye trying to do surgery on someone who's got a little bit of dust in their eye. And then the, the people would have laughed because the, the first century Jews were incredibly judgmental. And they knew it. They judged everybody that was not a Jew. They judged everyone that was a half-Jew. They, they, they had such disdain and criticism and judgment on the, on the Samaritans for that. They judged each other. They judged the spiritual, the, the religious leaders. The religious leaders judged everybody else. The whole culture was one of judgment. And the meaning in this, in this parable is really found in the exaggeration. And he's saying, basically, you guys... You have planks in your eye. I thought to myself, it'd be terrible to have a, a, a history of, of that kind of judgment. But then I thought about it in the church. Christianity has a history of being very judgmental. And our judgmentalness comes from our dualistic worldview. We, we look at all people as either them or us. And if you're raised in the church, it's always been about us and them. And I was raised in a staunch German Baptist church. And the them and us wasn't just about believers and unbelievers. It was about Baptists and everyone else. See, they honestly, they acted like they had the corner on truth. They saw God clearly. They saw him fully 
And if you were a Mennonite or a Pentecostal, well, you might get to heaven, but that'll just be by grace. You see? But us Baptists, it's because we got it right. That's why we're going. But the truth is that a lot of us in this room have been groomed to be spiritually judgmental. I remember, I remember the sitting, I had to wear a suit, like till I was 20, I had to wear a suit to go to church. Perfectly, perfectly redeemable, sunny Sunday morning. And all those kids are playing in the park and people are cutting their grass and they're having so much fun. All the while, I am sitting in church thinking to myself, wow, too bad they're going to hell. At least they get to enjoy their Sundays. You know what? (laughs) We were raised in it. The interesting thing about is that Jesus, he reserved his harshest words for those who were spiritually self-righteous. The religious, the self-righteous religious group. They, you know what? Jesus was actually drawn to sinners. He was drawn to, to, to thieves. He was drawn to liars. He was drawn to prostitutes. He was drawn to people that are morally bankrupt. He really was. He was attracted to them. The only people that repelled Jesus were the self-righteous religious people. Think about that. The thing about self-righteous people is that we tend to, to, to see life very black and white. And I say we on purpose, okay? I'd like to think that I'm not self-righteous, but that's just because I'm blind. We, we look at life in very black and white terms. We're very rigid in what, how, how we believe it. Anybody comes to you and, and, and interjects just a, a shade of gray into your thinking, you, you, you block it, you repel it, don't you? You know, that's not right. That's not right. You know, this is the way I think. It's interesting. Do you remember in 2007, the shack came out, all right? And Paul Young wrote, wrote this manuscript, um, never, never intended to publish it, never intended for it to go public because if you read it, it's an incredible book and it's a very intimate story that he writes and he's trying to communicate to his own children his journey with God after experiencing some deep trauma in his own life, deep pain in his own life. And he's trying to make sense of God as a result of his own pain. And so he writes this story to try and draw a picture of what, how he relates to God. And I couldn't believe it. Like, I couldn't believe the amount of people that called him an absolute heretic for simply sharing his relationship with Jesus, his relationship with the Holy Spirit, his relationship with God. And it's interesting that, that, that it wasn't the non-Christian. I mean, that book went viral. It was in Costco for Pete's sake. If it gets to Costco, you know it's gone around the world. And it wasn't the non-Christians criticizing him, non-Christians judging him. It was the Christians that were giving him all this grief. So let me tell you this, or let me ask you this. Are we any different than the first century Jews? Are we any different than they are? I think not. Now, I'm, I'm going to um, use an illustration here. 
And this is not a theological comment, okay? Just, want, just to be clear, this is, not, this is simply making a point. And if I ruffle your feathers, and I'm going to ruffle somebody's feathers in here, I know I'm going to do it, but if I offend you, and, and, and you, want, you want to comment back and correct my theology and correct my comment, feel free to email me at um, chadj at thehouseonline.ca. You could just and, uh, let her out. Just let it out. Just, just go, go, go big, and then, and then go home. Um, but in 2010, Rob Bell um, wrote a book. And in the book, he suggested that there may not actually be a hell. All right? He suggested that, 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 is that God's grace, at the end of the day, his love wins over all sin. And as you can imagine, the book, the book uh, was, uh, took a lot of heat. Very controversial in the church. And I read the book. I actually liked it. I thought it raised questions that I would have never known to ask. And, and, it, and, and, and it made me think about things I'd never thought about before. And Andy Stanley who was, uh, uh, was saying uh, that, that his church, his people bombarded him when that book came out because they all read it. And he read it. And, and, and then they're asking him, Pastor, tell us, tell us, what do you think about that book? Is, is there a possibility that there is no hell? Is there a possibility that love wins over, that God actually, in the work of Christ, redeems it all? Is that a possibility? Is he right? And Andy, came, Andy Stanley came up with this one, one response that he said he used for everybody. He said, well, I sure hope he is right. Don't you? I sure hope he is right. Don't you? He said it drove some of his people crazy. Because there are some Christians out there just way too happy that there's a hell. They just, they, you know what? You got to have all this fun in this world. You're going to pay for it in the next one. Self-righteous people have a way of elevating themselves above others. And we just look for things. Maybe, maybe you look for a reason that you're better than the next person. You're smarter, you're richer, you're, you're whatever. You're more spiritual. You look for reasons to elevate yourself. But in order to be really self-righteous, not only do you elevate yourself above somebody else, but you have to dumb God's holiness down significantly. Because that's the only way you can remain the standard. It's the only way you can stand in your pride, in your self-righteousness. And, 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 and you know this, that, that self-righteousness is, is a lot like bad breath. You're the only one in the room that doesn't know you have it. You can see it in somebody else, but you can't see it in yourself. And Jesus comes along and says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way, you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it'll be measured to you. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, you know the, the, the critical mouth that you have, this critical way about you, this judgmental way that you walk in, it is going to come back on you for sure. Guaranteed. He's saying that there's a kingdom principle in place that you cannot get around. And it says this, with what judgment you judge, you'll be judged. With what measurement you measure it out, it's going to come back. 
And you think that you beat the system because you, people are not criticizing you to your face. They're not judging you to your face. They're not talking to you like that. But just because they're not talking to you doesn't mean they're not talking. And just because they're not, you don't hear it doesn't mean they're not judging. You go out and walk around with a critical, judgmental attitude, and I promise you it is going to hit you right in the back of the head. It will come chasing you down because God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you reap. And so maybe it would be good for us to decide today what kind of kindness do you want to be judged with? And take the person that annoys you the most and start on that one. The person that's hurt you the most, start on that one. You shouldn't look at her like that. <laughs> that's not nice. He says, why do you look at the plank or why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You know why you do that? Because it's easier. So I'm looking at your issues. You know what? I'm not looking at my own. The great thing about looking at your issues, the longer I focus on your issues, you know, eventually my issues just seem to go away. I actually don't even think I have issues. Jesus said, you hypocrite. Now, if you stop reading right here, you could conclude that Jesus is saying so simply, listen, just mind your own business. And everything will be fine. You do you, I'll do me, and we're good. But he doesn't stop right here. In fact, the, the, the parable really begins right here. He says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly. It sounds like he's saying, you know, if I look at your schmutz, I look at your junk, I look at your pain. I look at your inconsistencies. I look at your flaws. And then I go, whoa, wow. And I use that as an opportunity to turn in on myself and go, this is, you know, I got some of that in me too. And you deal with your own stuff. Then that would actually mean that your messed up world is a great blessing to me. Because I look at you and you're all craziness and I go, wow, I got some of that in me, and that's that. But that's not where it ends either. Because following Jesus never, never ends in what's in it for me. Ever. Following Jesus never ends in what I get out of this, and that's all. Following Jesus is about leveraging all of what God has done in me, all of what God has done for me, and leveraging it in order to serve you, in order to love you, in order to give to you. That's the kingdom of God. Because the very epicenter of all Jesus' teaching is this. He said, there's a new commandment I'm bringing. He took 613 commandments, and he brings them down to this. He said, love one another. As I have loved you, love one another. He said, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. You see, the problem with me doing me and you doing you is that we walk around with enormous blind spots in our lives because we cannot gauge our own pride and our own self-righteousness 
by ourselves. We need others to help us with it. And I think that what Jesus is talking about is getting to a, a healthy place, a humble place where you, where you bring your own stuff to the God, to where you bring your own junk to a place of repentance so that you're not, you deal with the plank, not so that you're plankless. You deal with the plank so that now you're free to care and to love and to help somebody else. That's kingdom. That's what it's like. It's rare to find somebody that loves you enough to tell you that your breath stinks. Right? It's rare to find someone that loves you enough to go, whoa, you know, you're my friend, but your attitude sucks. You got, you got, your ego needs some adjusting. It takes someone to really love you. I don't know, have you ever had somebody come into your life and, and give that to you in a loving, healthy, healing way? I have. I hate those people. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm, kidding. No, I, I'm, I'm thankful. I got people that will call me on my junk. And that takes us right back to that beautiful command to love one another as I've loved you, he said. You see, self-righteousness gets in the way of that kind of love, doesn't it? Self-righteousness gets in the way of that. But self-awareness actually paves a path to live and to walk in that commandment, in that kind of love. And then Jesus gives us a second parable, and I'm going to go through this real quick. In Luke chapter 18, he's talking about another guy who just cannot, doesn't realize that there's a plank in his eye. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Clearly, Jesus is pointing to the self-righteousness of this Pharisee. You know, you know the interesting thing about Pharisees? Like they, the, the picture we get of them in the New Testament, they're elitist, they're arrogant, they're pride, proud, they're self-righteous, but they didn't start out that way. Human beings have an infinite capacity to adjust downward. And adjusting is always a downward motion. And these Pharisees, they, you know what they started out? This sect began when the, Greek, uh, when, when, when the Greek kingdom expanded. And that Hellenistic culture began to blend with the Hebrew culture. Began to blend with the, with the, the, the Jewish culture. And these Pharisees, they actually started out and said, whoa, whoa two completely incompatible belief systems and we want to stay pure and we want to keep our hearts right before Yahweh. And so they pulled themselves away and they said, we are going to obey the law. We're going to walk according it to the letter. 
And that's how they began. But eventually you began to realize they had distanced themselves, not only from the Greeks, but they distanced themselves from their own people. And they took 10 commands and they expanded it to 613 commands. And now they're so outdistanced anybody else that in fact they were elitist. They, they, they had respect, they, they, they had control, they had power over the people. And the tax collector, well, he got where he was because when, the Rome, when Rome expanded and they would conquer nations, instead of annihilating the, the, the people in those nations, they took them over as vassal nations. And they, they allowed people to live and they allowed people to prosper and they allowed people to live really well. And then they went and they taxed the crap out of those people. And the way they did that is that they would pick one Jewish guy in a neighborhood and say, okay, you, go, you collect our tax, our government tax from all of your relatives and all your friends. And wink, wink, by the way, if you take a little extra, you deserve it. You're worth it, you know. And so these tax collectors would really literally go to their own family members, their own neighbors, their own friends, and they would tax them. And they became incredibly wealthy by stealing money from their own people. And they were hated and they were despised. In fact, one of the reasons this guy stood afar off, they weren't even allowed. They're Jews, but they weren't allowed in the temple because they were that evil, okay? And Jesus compares these two men. And when he talks about the Pharisee praying, the Greek actually says this, the, 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 Pharisee stood, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. In essence, the scripture says he was talking to himself about himself. I feel like that sometimes when I'm up here talking to myself about myself. And he says, thank you, God, that I am not like this bottom feeder. Thank you, God. Can you see what he cannot see? Can you see the plank that he is walking around with? His ego and pride. They actually are getting, Jesus repels that, but he can't see it. The tax collector, on the other hand, he is so aware of his sin. He's so aware of his brokenness, of how, how, how disappointing he must be to God, that he doesn't even look up. He doesn't even go into the temple. He beats his breast in grief, and he says, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Uh, it, says the, it, it says a sinner, but the Greek actually says the sinner. See, if, I, if I'm just part of a herd of sinners, then that, that makes it easy for me. But he doesn't even go there. He goes, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus said, this man went down justified. Why? Because he knew he needed a savior. He knew that he needed forgiveness. He knew that he wasn't good enough. He was positioned to receive. I'm gonna invite the band to come on up. Do you know why the Pharisee was so self-righteous? It's because he was comparing himself to the wrong person. The Pharisee kept looking at everybody who was morally bankrupt and said, see that, see that, look at him, oh, you're way better than him, better than him, better than him. He actually presented himself, even in his own prayer to God, as the standard. Thank you, God. I'm the guy. I am the guy. 
when the standard was already established. The standard is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And when you compare yourself to that standard, compare yourself to Christ, his heart, his compassion, his love, his obedience, his holiness, you know what you'll come up with? You'll come up with the same conclusion that Paul did. In Romans 3, he said, compared to Christ, there is no one righteous. There is no, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. It's all a matter of who you compare yourself to. And then Jesus finishes this parable by saying that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted you know I love that passage where it says that you see actually the truth is that it's going up going down always leads us up there's a passage says that if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us us of all righteousness. When you go down, he lifts you up. But there's also another passage that says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Why? That you may be made whole or that you may be healed. You see, it's when we come to each other in humility, when we come to each other, when we come to the Father and we, and we own it, we humble ourselves. You see, you're sitting here dressed in one of two things. You're dressed in your own goodness that you're hoping is going to work. Or you're dressed in a righteousness that you cannot achieve or attain or deserve. But it's extended to you. It's the righteousness of Christ. I wondered that if we would take just a minute at the end of this service humble ourselves I don't know how often you do this how often do you bring your your sin to the Father how often do you bring your complaint your, your hurt somebody else offended you and bring that to the Father take the plank out of your own eye get humble and then you become an amazing healing agent for other people in your life and that's ultimately what it means for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we know, we confess. We confess, Father, that we are prideful. We have a measure of self-righteousness and judgment that we walk in. And we ask you to forgive us for that. We forgive those, Father, who've hurt us. We forgive them. We release them. We ask you to forgive us. And Lord, we invite you to come and to open our eyes to see clearly I think the only way to do that is to, 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 to help us to see each other through love. 
to see clearly is to see like you see and you, you, you are love. And so I pray that you give us eyes to see each other through your love, through your grace and through your mercy that you would use us, Father, in the world that you've called us to, to be a healing agent.